is Victoria. I am otherwise engaged or possibly just ignoring your call. Leave a message. Victoria, I'm on board the train on my way to Chicago where I'll reevaluate whether I want to continue by rail or figure something else out. I'm sitting here in my sleeper compartment mulling over this telegram. Still don't understand how Michael is sending these things to places even I don't know I'm going to be at. I feel my brain stroking out just considering the ramifications. But the how of it is not really my primary concern at the moment. This telegram. I've been staring at it for an hour, trying to determine if it's supposed to be some kind of, I don't know, code or something. Here, I'll read it. Father, stop. (laughs) Still with the whole father thing. Okay. After that, it says, avoid number 417 at all costs, stop. Beware of the ones in yellow, stop. Michael, stop. Any ideas? 417. 4 plus 1 plus 7 equals 12. 12, a dozen, that could be... I got nothing. I'm sure the answer will present itself eventually. Some new element to this cosmic puzzle I find myself traversing. Nothing to do but see how it plays out. 417. Hmm. Victoria, more people should travel by train. The soothing sound of the churning steel, the country flashing by, it's very relaxing. The scenery is different after the mountains. These plains are just so, well, flat. But there's still a certain kind of beauty to it. Even the wind farms are kind of cool, looming colossi of engineering, giants towering over farmlands, leaning rows of corn stalks and seas of waving wheat and warm yellow. Yellow. Beware the ones in yellow. Yeah, Michael. I'll be sure to do that. from Arkham, written and performed by S. Lee Benedict. The voice of Victoria is McKenna Beaker. Well, Victoria, this is a new but not wholly surprising wrinkle. The train is stopped in what appears to be the middle of nowhere, rural Nebraska. I figure we're about midway across the state, not yet to Lincoln. Apparently there's been some kind of bad wreck further up the track, an accident or something, and the track has been damaged to boot. The train has to wait until it's repaired before it can get on its way again. The attendant or conductor or whatever they're called these days said it may be hours. I tried to get him to be more specific with the time frame, but he seemed a bit evasive, odd about it even, and definitely unapologetic. The tracks are flanked by sorghum fields on either side as far as the eye can see. According to the acerbic conductor, supposedly there's a town nearby, but I don't... Wait, no, I I can see a structure beyond the fields to my north. Looks like a church steeple or something. All the other passengers seem to be staying close to the train, but I wonder if it might not be a good idea to wander into town, see what's what, 
Get a bite to eat, maybe. I'd hate to come back to find the train gone, but if it seriously is going to be an hours long wait, it shouldn't be a problem. The alternative, standing around waiting, is going to drive me crazy. Stretching my legs might do me some good. I'll report back later. Victoria. The town is called Calamity Falls. What a name, right? It's a pretty small burg, one main road in or out kind of deal with no more than a hundred homes and other buildings branching off from that. A place time forgot. As I walked into town by way of the main thoroughfare, I noticed a handful of businesses, some stores, a one-screen movie theater, which may or may not actually be open. The marquee said The Phantom Menace was playing, so I'm not real sure about that one. The main road culminates in a town square, and at its heart is a municipal building. It's two stories making it the largest structure in the town, from what I can tell. Well, except for that church, I guess, if you count the steeple. That's at the far side of the square. I'm looking at it through a window from a little coffee shop, which may be Calamity Falls' only restaurant. Not a lot of people out and about, and at the moment there's only two customers in here. A father and his teenage daughter, by the looks of it. Not much younger than you, I should think. Both the man and the solitary waitress here seemed to consider me gravely when I came in. She was pretty reluctant to let me order anything other than a cup of coffee. In fact, everyone I've seen has rendered a fair amount of side-eye in my direction. Not unusual, probably. I get the feeling they don't see a lot of -of out-of-towners. Still, I get a pretty distinct Wicker Man vibe, or Children of the Corn, maybe? That's not quite right, but there's a movie metaphor here somewhere. I'll figure it out. Hmm. The teenaged girl with her father seems pretty upset about something. She appears to be quietly weeping, her face downcast just staring at the plate of food in front of her, not even touching it. The father's got his hand on her back, trying to console her, I guess, but just barely. He seems pretty disinterested in whatever's disquieting her. Anyway, not my business. Do you hear that? The church bells are tolling. It's now 3.12pm according to my phone, so it's not marking the time. Calling parishioners to some kind of church service, maybe? Kind of a weird time for one, mid-afternoon on a Tuesday. The other customers, the father and the daughter, just got up and left. And yeah, now I see a few people heading toward the church. The man and the girl who were just in here seem to be heading that direction as well. Curious. Wonder what's going on? Hmm. After my last message, I watched more townsfolk go into the church. Maybe two dozen or so? After a few minutes, the coffee shop waitress kicked me out, saying they close every day for a couple hours in the afternoon. When I asked why, she just shrugged and said those were their hours. There wasn't anything posted that said as much, though. I checked. Anyway, I wandered around the square for a bit after that and started to realize the town seemed to be a bust as far as a means to kill time. But as I got closer to the church, I saw the door was still standing open. I walked toward it, toying with the idea of venturing in. I admit I was curious about the meeting or service or whatever was going on inside. But I froze in my tracks when a man standing in the vestibule spotted me and immediately moved to close the doors. It was that same man that had been in the coffee shop. No sign of his daughter, though. But what halted my progress so abruptly when I saw him was that over the white button-down shirt and slacks he had been wearing when I saw him before, he put on some kind of robe. Almost like a priest's vestment or something. I remembered thinking he looked like some kind of priest because draped over his shoulders was an embroidered red stole. But the robe itself wasn't priestly black or even white. It was yellow. Beware of the ones in yellow. I know what you're thinking because I was thinking the same thing at first. 
A coincidence. How could it be anything but? The fact that this humble worshipper was dressed in yellow parochial garb had nothing to do with Michael's warning. But I'm starting to think there are no such things as coincidences in my world anymore. Everything that happens to me, has happened to me since LA, is meant to happen. Or is being engineered to happen. I never used to be so paranoid, but I guess it's my new normal. Turns out my paranoia was warranted, but I'll get to that in a minute. The man in the vestibule's robe wasn't the only thing that had me thinking about Michael's admonition. As I stood there staring at the now-closed doors, wondering what it all meant, my eyes took in the facade. The building is old, mid-19th century, not what you would expect in the rural Midwest. I mean, it's not the standard wooden, white, little house on the prairie kind of deal. This church is constructed from stone. I don't really know too much about architecture, but I'd say it's gothic, maybe? I got to wondering what denomination it was, what flavor of Christianity the good townsfolk of Calamity Falls, Nebraska adhered to. I looked for some kind of identifying sign, but found none. I made my way around the building, taking it all in. Windows and stained glass, fairly generic, meaning I saw no scenes of Christ and the apostles depicted, no crosses or anything you might expect, but nothing overtly unusual at all. That is, until I reached the back of the church where I found a small cemetery. That in itself, of course, isn't unusual, but as I studied the headstones, I noticed there were no Christian symbols there either. My blood ran cold when my eyes landed on one particular monument bearing a now familiar emblem, an eye within a circle. And the only difference between what was on the gravestone and what was revealed on that parchment by the heat of the cabin fire in Colorado was that this eye was encircled by what appeared to be a ring of flame. I found the same symbol on several of the nearby tombstones, some dating back to the mid-19th century. I realized the burning in my back had returned, though it only was slightly bothersome. I left the cemetery then and made my way around the other side of the building, seeing nothing else unusual and no indication of what this church called itself. But when I rounded the corner back to the front of the structure, I almost missed it. The cornerstone. An engraved bronze plaque had been affixed to it, and it read, Constructed 1860. Brothers of the Yellow Sign. Lodge 417. 417. The Yellow Sign. The ones in yellow. If there had been any doubt about a connection between Michael's telegram warning and this church, or whatever it is, and this town, it was obliterated in that moment. And I would imagine that any doubt has been removed for you as well, Victoria. 417. I guess that's one mystery solved. I almost ran back to the train then. In fact, I made it as far as the edge of town. I meant to keep going. I wanted to, but... Here I am, still standing by the Calamity Falls sign, and I notice now it doesn't say anything like, Welcome to Calamity Falls, like most civil places in this country. It's more like a statement than anything else. Less a name of a town, perhaps, and more of a warning. Or a threat. This is the place where calamity will befall you. I'm not going back to the train. Not just yet. I know I'm going to regret this. Victoria. Victoria. I can't believe I'm getting a signal down here. I'm somewhere underground and have lost all my bearings. I don't know how expansive these tunnels are. I've given them the slip for now, though, these brothers of the yellow sign. They're some kind of cult, I think. A cult in the middle of Nebraska. I know it sounds crazy, but... <sighs> After my last message to you, I went back to the church. 
or I guess I shouldn't call it that, Lodge then, Lodge 417. I hadn't seen anyone come out yet, so I had to assume they were all still inside. There wasn't a sign of anyone else on the street either, all the businesses looked shuttered. Might as well have been a ghost town. The doors weren't locked, so I went inside. No sign of the man from the coffee shop in the vestibule, no sign of anyone. Beyond the entry, what would be the sanctuary in a regular church and appeared to be something akin to that in the lodge as well was likewise empty. The room had pews facing an altar, but instead of a crucifix on the wall behind it, I saw that now familiar symbol fashioned in bronze, a large eye encircled in a wreath of fire like what I'd seen on the tombstone outside. Numerous candelabras holding a multitude of blazing candles lined the room, and tinted sunlight passed through the stained glass windows, which I now realized weren't ordinary at all. They depicted perplexing tableaus, most of which I couldn't even attempt to describe, though one in particular I recall as showing a strange creature backdropped by a swirling vortex and surrounded by supplicants. It wore a hooded yellow cloak from the bottom of which sprung grotesque massive tentacles that enveloped its followers. Surely this thing, this deity the yellow cultist worshipped was a thing of myth. Surely something like this couldn't actually exist. Right, Victoria? But I remembered something then. Something the old man in the Utah desert told me. I think I relayed to you before how he had detailed ancient stories about old gods and that he had told me some of their names. I've forgotten most of them now, but as I stood there in that sanctuary, one name in particular jumped to the forefront of my mind. Pastor. The old man called him the King in Yellow. I don't know how I knew it, but I became certain that's what I was seeing depicted in that stained glass. And it was Haster's eye, the yellow sign that adorned the wall of that sanctuary and the tombstones outside, and that piece of parchment that was sent to me. By that point, the spot on my back that had been bothering me was burning pretty intensely. And not for the first time I thought about how that sensation was somehow a physical response to these things I'd been encountering, especially the image of that eye, but not just that. I have no idea how something like that is even possible, but it is. As I stood there, I heard the sound of what I can only describe as chanting coming from the front of the room. Against my better judgment, I followed the sound, and as I moved around the altar, I immediately saw that behind it there was an opening in the floor. A stone staircase led down, underground. I slowly made my way down the stairs. The chanting grew louder as I did. At the bottom was a small room with hallways leading off in three directions. Yellow cloaks hung on the walls. I was loath to don one of those wretched garments, and my stomach churned at the thought of it, but I thought it better I'd try to blend in lest anyone see me. So I took one and slipped it around me, pulling up its hood. At first it was difficult to determine which direction to go, but the sound seemed to be much louder in one particular passage. It led me to a kind of mezzanine that extended in a circle over a recessed chamber. Several cultists in yellow robes, hoods drawn up to obscure their faces, were the source of the chanting, which was in some guttural language I didn't recognize. Certainly it wasn't a recognized language in any nation on this earth. The cultists lined the balcony area and peered down into the room below. There, four more acolytes surrounded a raised stone platform upon which a girl, also cloaked in yellow, was lying supine, hands and feet tied to posts embedded in the altar's four corners. I recognized her immediately as the teen from the coffee shop. She wasn't struggling, but I could clearly see she was still weeping. I couldn't believe what I was witnessing. What were they going to do to her? The sick feeling in the pit of my gut told me I knew the answer to that question. 
My first thought was to leave immediately, summon whatever served for police in this town. But surely any constabulary that existed in Calamity Falls was complicit. I mean, right? I thought about running back to the train, thinking maybe the conductor could contact someone, the FBI, anyone. But I knew there was no way I'd be in time to help the poor girl. I watched in horror as the chanting reached a fevered pitch. One of the cultists below wore a red stole, and I realized it was the girl's father. At least I thought it was her father, but maybe not. He produced a curved dagger, a wicked-looking thing that could serve no utility other than something dreadful. And as the strange chant reached its crescendo, he raised it up, clearly intent on thrusting it into the teen girl's chest. Without thinking, I yelled out, No! My cry reverberated off the stone walls. The chanting ceased immediately and all eyes swung toward me. A hand reached up and pulled my hood down, revealing my face for all to see. I reflexively turned toward the cultist who'd done it and instantly recognized the waitress from the coffee shop. You, she said, sneering. I ran, but the waitress was holding firm to the hood of my borrowed robe. I flung it off me and took off down the passage I'd come from, knowing the cultist would be after me in an instant. When I reached the antechamber, that cultist cloakroom, I made for the stairs. But there was movement at the top, more cultists coming down, I guess. With nowhere else to go, I darted down one of the side passages, not knowing in the slightest where I was going. The place was a maze with more hallways branching out from the one I'd taken. I heard shouting behind me, but the more turns I took in the subterranean labyrinth, the more distant they became. Eventually, I found a door and went through it. The room beyond was little more than a closet. In fact, I think it is some kind of storage space because there are shelves lined with canned goods and other sundry supplies. I've made it my hiding place for now, but it's only a matter of time before they find me. Better think of something quickly or... I don't want to finish that thought. Do you think I stopped it? Was my outburst enough to disrupt their dark ceremony? Enough for them to spare that girl's life? Well, if they didn't kill her the moment I left that chamber, I feel certain her reprieve won't last long. But I can't think about that right now. Sadly, I, I don't think there's anything I can do to help her. And I've got to find a way out of here. I've got to... Wait. Victoria. I think I hear them now. Oh no. Victoria. I made it. I'm back on the train, which has continued on its way. I made it back just in time. Ran up covered in sweat just as it was beginning to roll away. The conductor seemed surprised to see me. Said he thought I'd decided to stay. Seemed like an odd thing to say. If I'd been him and one of my passengers had wandered off and not come back, I don't think I'd assume they just opted to hang out in Calamity Falls indefinitely. It was strange and I'd... But wait, I'm getting ahead of myself. More on that later as I'm sure you're eager to find out how I escaped the Brothers of the Yellow Sign. And Victoria, you're not going to believe it. I was listening at the door of the storage closet as voices drew near in the passage beyond. I darted behind one of the shelves, but I felt sure it wouldn't conceal me if someone opened the door. No sooner had I dug down than the door did open, and standing in it was the teenaged girl, the one they'd just been about to sacrifice to their king in yellow. Our eyes met instantly. I had no doubt she could easily see the fear in mine. Hers were still wet with tears, but I was glad to see she was still alive. A voice behind her demanded, Well, anything? The girl shook her head. No, she said. The person she was with, possibly that cultist high priest or whatever he was, moved past her and on down the hall, leaving the girl standing there. 
She tilted her head in the opposite direction, clearly indicating I should go that way. Come with me, I mouthed. She offered me a wan smile and shook her head. And then she was gone, following after the cultist. A wave of infinite melancholy washed over me as I realized this young girl was complicit in her own demise. She somehow had been brainwashed into agreeing to it, maybe even thought she was destined for it. And I had neither the time nor the tools to convince her otherwise. I made my way in the direction the girl had indicated and eventually found another side passage that led to a ladder going up. At the top was a kind of hatch. It opened without much difficulty and led me outside where I found myself behind one of the few businesses that lined the main thoroughfare, a hardware store or something. Night had fallen by then, so I was able to make my way without trouble, thank God, out of town back into the sorghum field which I used as cover to get back to the train. And here I sit as it rumbles along, bound for Lincoln, Omaha, and eventually Chicago. But back to what I was saying about the exchange between me and the conductor. On account of everything that had happened in Calamity Falls, I was feeling hypersensitive, I admit. My original intention had been to immediately tell someone on the train, someone in authority, that is, about what was going on in the town. I didn't really think anything could help the poor girl, but it's what a sane person would do. And for the moment, I'm still sane. I think. But as I was about to say what I had to say to the conductor, I looked down and noticed something protruding from his pocket, far enough that I could clearly see what it was and at least part of what was written on it. It was an envelope. I could clearly see the postmark stamp in its corner, and I swear the name written on the front of it was mine. I mean, I only glimpsed part of the last name, but I'm sure it was my name. I'm sure it was another letter from Arkham. But why did the conductor have it? And why wasn't he handing it over to me? I knew then he was keeping it from me on purpose. But why? Mysteries upon mysteries, Victoria. I guess I have until Chicago to solve this one.